Last week, we finished Revelation chapter 7, which was an interlude, a pause between the sixth and the seventh seals. And so this, in this morning's text from chapter 8, we're ready for the seventh and final seal to be opened. And so we'll view the text under the headings that are there in your bulletin. The silence, the seven trumpets, the altar, and then the first four trumpets. So first, the silence, the the sovereign lamb. This is Revelation chapter 8, verse 1. He opens the seventh climactic seal. And quite surprisingly... There's utter silence, silence in heaven, the text says, for about half an hour. Now, we've already been told that the four living creatures never cease day and night to chant the praise of the thrice holy God who is and who was and who is to come. And that the 24 elders never cease responding To all the creatures with a hymn of their own. And now, when the final seal is opened, silence. This is a hushed pause, and it serves a couple of purposes here. It's the calm before the storm of the end. The seventh seal brings us right up to the end, and this silence is the expectant silence of the saints who long for vindication. It's also the foreboding silence before the Lord who comes to judge. Both prophets, Habakkuk and Zechariah, put it this way, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all flesh keep silence before him. Another thing that this silence is doing stems from this traditional Jewish belief that the heavenly host were hushed at one point each day so that the prayers of Israel could be heard in heaven. And that's very likely in view here because the prayers of the saints are about to be offered and heard and responded to in the space provided in this heavenly liturgy, by this silence. Now, the fact that it's a half an hour has has been puzzling for centuries. There's many, many suggestions. We're not really sure, but perhaps the best one is that a half an hour is about the time it takes the priests to do their work, which they did in silence, in the earthly temple. So that's the silence. Secondly, the seven trumpets. You'll notice in verse 2... Seven angels stand before God, are given seven trumpets. And these same seven angels with seven trumpets prepare to blow them in verse 6. Now remember, we're ready to open the seventh seal. And what we get is a picture of seven angels with seven trumpets. This is important because it means that in some way the seven trumpets are inside the seventh seal. They flow out of the seventh seal. The seventh seal opens, and in the trumpets we go back 
to another parallel series of judgments, parallel to the seal judgments, only now they're heightened. That's the big picture thing of what the trumpets are doing. But I want to say a few things about trumpets. If, if you look in the Old Testament, trumpets are used for a number of things. They sound the alarm of war in Israel. And they're blown at Mount Sinai when the Lord appears in his majesty and his glory. He appears in judgment. And particularly important is a story which I think we're all, we all know, the story of Jericho. But there, seven priests blew seven trumpets. And they did so in the presence of the ark as they circled the city. And when the seventh and climactic trumpet is blown later in Revelation, the ark of God appears in heaven. And so John is picking up all of these echoes. Israel, he's saying, assembled as a holy army, executed trumpet judgments on Jericho before they could enter Canaan. And here the new Israel of God is engaged in holy trumpet-led warfare. Just like Jericho, Babylon or Rome must fall before the saints enter the promised land. So the seal judgments were the prelude. The temple judgments, the, the trumpet judgments are going to move the story forward. In a parallel way, but not till the end. So that's the function of the seven trumpets in the book. They're not doing anything fundamentally different than the seals. They're going back, starting from the beginning, running up to the end, only ratcheting up the intensity. So third here is this altar. In verse 3, an angel comes during the silence. And the angel stands at the altar. And this altar is mentioned three times in these verses, this is the same altar under which the souls of the martyrs were seen crying out for vindication in chapter 6. The angel then with a golden censer is given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. We've already seen earlier that the 24 elders have golden bowls full of incense, which, is, which are said to be the prayers of the saints. And so we've mentioned this a couple times, but here's the textual support for it. Here's the passage which gets to the heart of it. The prayers of the saints, especially the prayers of the martyrs, are being offered in heaven as pleasing, acceptable sacrifices an aroma of incense before the Lord. The scene here is they're offered on this golden altar. And thus this cloud of incense prayer would cover the throne. John always takes the throne and puts it in the Holy of Holies. That's part of his heavenly architecture. So verse 4 puts it this way. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose or went up before God from the hand of the angel. Your prayers are in this scene. And the gap between verse 4 and 5 make it clear that God acknowledges, God hears, God receives, and he accepts these prayers because in verse 5 we read, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. 
This is symbolic language for the fact that God has heard the prayers of the church and he throws down fire. That is, he throws down judgment, not a literal fire, to the earth. But Jesus said this of his own ministry. He said, I have come to cast fire on the earth. That doesn't mean he's going to start a bunch of forest fires. It means his ministry is a ministry of judgment, a burning ministry of purification. And this scene is that same Christ risen, continuing his fiery work. And it's this text, which is the source of, I think I've mentioned this before, Eugene Peterson's wonderful uh, meditation on the book of Revelation, the title of which is Reversed Thunder. The prayers of the saints are thunder moving in the reverse direction. They flow from earth up to the throne. They're reverse thunder, and that precipitates the heaven to earth thunder of verse 5. Your prayers are reverse thunder, and they're answered by heavenly thunder. There were peals, the text says, of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning. The same phenomenon we saw around the throne in chapter 5. Only now an earthquake is added. As the judgments flow from the throne down to the earth in response to the prayers of the saints. Especially the martyrs' prayers. This is a fire cast down to the earth. This language is the language of God coming or appearing for redemption and for judgment. So what we see in this text is all heaven breaking loose. And it's precisely that which causes, as we shall see, all the forces of hell to break loose. All heaven breaks loose is much more dreadful than all hell breaking loose. All heaven breaking loose is what, in fact, bounds and causes and unleashes the forces of hell. And that brings us to the fourth uh, the four trumpets here. Now, before we get these four trumpets, a few general words about these trumpet judgments. First, the trumpets are intended to judge in the book of Revelation unbelievers. Believers do not escape suffering associated with them, but they're not judged by them. The trumpet judgments do no harm to those who have the seal of God. The friends of God who are sealed by God are not harmed by the cataclysms in the earth. And you'll notice that these judgments are not total. They affect a third of the realm that they fall on. And that tells us that we're not yet at the end. The seals affected a quarter of the earth. These judgments affect a third of the earth. And they're warning judgments. They hold forth the possibility of repentance. And these trumpet judgments, and we saw this in the Old Testament lesson this morning, they rely heavily on the plagues visited on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. A large part of what they are is a, is a symbolic way of saying that just like at the Exodus, God has heard the cry of his afflicted people and he's coming down to deliver them. Another thing to note about the trumpets is that they extend to the whole world. They're comprehensive in geography. They cover the, 
the whole earth. This is seen, for example, in the first four plagues right here in chapter 8. The first four trumpets, they afflict all four spheres of creation. The earth, salt water, fresh water, and the sky. So that's sort of the trumpets in general. But now, last thing I want to say as a sort of introduction to these trumpets is, and, and this might be disappointing, but all of this means that it's perilous and it's very difficult to try and pin these judgments to specific historical events and persons. What we have in the trumpets is a highly symbolic, general description of how God, in a partial, restrained fashion, judges the world before the end in response to the petitions of the saints. That's what they are. So with all that, the first one, the first trumpet's in verse 7. The first angel blows his warning trumpet, and there follows hail and fire mixed with blood, just as there was in the seventh plague in Egypt. A third of the earth is burned up, a third of the trees are burned up, and all the green grass. Probably a reference to the ravages of war on the land, since war is always accompanied by crop burning, famine. But it's important to get another basic symbol Straight here. The king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10 is likened to a tree. He's a tree which in his arrogance the Lord cuts the tree down, Isaiah says, and burns it. Right, so this fiery language is about the Lord. It's the language of the judgment of God on the oppressors of God's people. Right, this is not a blow-by-blow blow account of a really bad fire. The second trumpet blows and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea becomes blood. Again, what's the background? The Nile being turned to blood when God's people were delivered from oppression in Egypt. And it's important again to, to, to recall that mountains, here it's called the great mountain, mountains are kingdoms usually in the Old Testament. Even Israel is spoken of as the mountain of the Lord. But very significantly, Jeremiah refers to Babylon as the mountain the Lord will burn, which will be engulfed by the sea. That judgment on that ancient kingdom of Babylon anticipates the judgment on the new end-time Babylon of the book of Revelation. So again, the mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea indicates the partial judgment of God on Rome, the empire, and by implication on all Babylon, Babylonian-type oppressors of God's people before the end. That's what it means to see a huge mountain burning with fire thrown into the sea. And the third trumpet blows and a great star falls blazing like a torch. Isaiah 14 says that ancient Babylon is a star which will be thrown down to the ground. So hopefully now we can start to see the pattern. In Revelation chapter 18, it will be said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. The star is named Wormwood here, which is a bitter herb. It poisons a third of the water, resulting in many deaths. It's bitter because of the bitterness of suffering and judgment. 
And finally you get this fourth plague where the darkness from Exodus is evoked. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars are struck so that a third of the heavenly lights are put out. Again, this language is prophetic language, standard prophetic language used in the Old Testament for the judgment of political orders, for idolatrous kingdoms. This is not primarily about astrological phenomenon. This is how God judges empires. So let me conclude. The Egyptian plagues, they meant the defeat of the Egyptian gods and the liberation of God's people. And the plagues unleashed here mean this. They mean the defeat of idolatrous states and idolatrous empires and the ultimate vindication of the people of God. Now here, it is important to see that this is a broad, sweeping sort of thing that John is doing. History is ultimately inscrutable to us. But we can say the wrath of God is being poured out. It's being revealed from heaven, as Paul says, against all unrighteousness. And that means against all unrighteous, persecuting regimes. This is why Revelation is the great political resistance track in the history of Christian literature. This and a hundred other reasons in the book. So, but, but, and this is important, we're called to walk a very fine line here. Very fine. We cannot stand up and say this event or that event is the judgment of God. But neither can we remain silent and pretend that the earth is not full of the judgments of God because it is. And that's a balancing act that requires wisdom and discernment and humility and in some cases courage. We're called in the midst of these trumpet judgments to bear witness as we've seen throughout. And a key part of that witness bearing is praying. And a key part of that praying is praying for the vindication of the faithful suffering church. We're encouraged here to know that our prayers offered as incense, as weak as they may appear, they are actually history's most potent force. The weaker we are, the weak little things we do enables the sufficiency of God's mighty grace to be seen. Your prayers are reversed thunder, which is then thrown down to the earth. It is the prayers which we pray. For the kingdom of God, which unleashed the scene in this text. Now, I know a scene like this, because it's a broad, panoramic sort of text, it can seem detached or far away from life, particularly in the West. But the whole passage and its relevance can be seen in a remarkable and a true story. It was 11.20 a.m. in London, June 18th, 1944. It's the era of Hitler and Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin. The city is under siege from German bombing. Chaos, smoke, we might say blood, hail, 
darkness. You know, I often think of the American, what I like to call ocean privilege, which detaches us from the horrors of both world wars. A text like this seems far away to you and me, but it would not seem that strange to someone who had lived through World War I and World War II. It would be perfectly reasonable for that person to think of rivers being turned to blood and darkness and plague and the earth being scorched. They saw it with their own eyes. There's a kind of American detachment, both geographically and historically, that allows us to say, oh, that's a weird text, whatever. June 18th, 1944. Trumpet judgments. Smoke. Blood. Sirens blaring. Over 10,000 casualties a week. Whole tracks of the great city reduced to rubble. And the great reformed preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great English preacher, medical doctor, went into the ministry, stands this morning, June 18th, praying his pastoral prayer while the whole congregation hears the sound of a German plane closing in. And the whine overhead is so loud that he cannot continue. He pauses. The congregation is hushed. Silence. Foreboding, anticipatory, dreadful silence. And some panic. The bomb drops. The structure cracks. Smoke, white dust fills the sanctuary. Sirens continue to wail. Dr. Jones finishes the pastoral prayer. He tells everyone who wishes to move under the gallery for safety to do so. A deacon arises and dusts off the podium, wipes it clean. Jones steps back to it, opens his Bible, and begins preaching the same text he had planned to preach on. That, beloved, is a vivid, condensed picture of our text this morning. That is the relationship between the prayers of the saints and the fire that is thrown down from heaven in this very text. You and I live in times when trumpets are being blown. And these judgments are being poured out on the earth. Have you noticed any of them? We need to notice them. So that means we need to ask the Lord to give us eyes to see aright and fiery hearts. To add our urgent prayers to the incense altar before the glorious throne for the sake of the vindication of his people and for the sake of the coming of the indestructible kingdom of God. Amen.